Tonight we come to the conclusion of Ephesians chapter 3, and also to the uh, conclusion at least of the first part of this series called The Brave New World on the book of Ephesians. As next week we begin the season of Advent, we'll take a break from Ephesians, and we'll likely jump back into it in January. And this is a great place to come to an end, or at least a middle end, uh, a first end uh, on this. It's a fitting and instructive and encouraging conclusion. These two verses, here's what they say again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's a doxology. It's a short eruption of praise to the God that Paul has been writing about in terms of who he is and the work that he's been doing to create a new world, a world that we all want and all hope for and all long for, a world that we're all trying to get in one way or another through whatever means that we come up with. Paul's been making this audacious claim that God has actually begun the new world, the better world that we want in the person of the Messiah, in his death and resurrection. And then he says at the height of that that you were brought into this. He's writing to the churches in Western Asia Minor about 2,000 years ago. He says you you were brought into this because you were grafted into the Messiah who died and who rose again. And And the Messiah not only died and was raised, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were raised. And you were brought into one new humanity. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile was broken down in the, in, the, in the flesh of Jesus through the cross. You were brought together and now you have a new life in him. A question we could ask is, so what's the purpose of this work of God at work in the world? This, this, this new thing that he's unleashing. And now there are a lot of layers of answers that we could give to that question. But I want to suggest one in terms of our starting place tonight. And that is ultimately that the purpose of these things is the glory of God. We could look at the whole book of Ephesians, at least up to this point in our study, as an invitation to worship. Paul begins chapter 1, verse 3, after a few words of saying, Hi, how are you? This is who I am. He begins saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And he goes on for a really long time, without a period, and praises and worships this God for all that he's done. And then, here at the end of chapter 3, after Paul's finishing up this exposition of the work of God in Christ, he says, now to him be the glory. So he starts with worship, and he finishes with worship. This is incredibly fitting and consistent with God's design in the work that he does in the world. So I want to recall a couple of things about this being the purpose, the glory of God. Chapter 1, verse 6. We were chosen for the adoption to the praise of his glorious grace. One twelve. He chose us beforehand that we might be to the praise of his glory. Again, one fourteen. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. 2.7, we were raised up by God with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He could show forth, display his kindness and riches through us. 
And then we looked at a couple of weeks ago, chapter 3, verse 10, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to all the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So even as Paul details under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the great work that God has done through his grace, love, and mercy, he maintains again and again that God's purposes in this work are to bring glory to his own name, to the praise of his glory. It's interesting, that's exactly what we found in sometimes in a shocking and abrasive way to us in Ezekiel 36 that Caroline read for us earlier. God says, the reason I'm going to give these people a new heart, the reason I'm going to give them uh, a new spirit, is not for their sake, because they're not worthy and they're not deserving. In fact, he says, you've gone among the nations and violated the holiness of my name. It's not for your sake that I'm going to act, O Israel, but it's for the sake of my own name. That's why I'm going to act and do this new work. God is zealous to be known as the faithful, gracious, holy, loving, powerful God that he is. Now, it's easy for us to question this. Here's how that questioning can go sometimes. Isn't this selfish and prideful on God's behalf? How can he call us to humility when he's so centered upon himself? And here's a brief response, if that question came into your mind. Uh, For us to place ourselves at the center is disordering to what reality actually is. As contingent and limited beings, we're not at the center of the universe. And when we put ourselves or anything or anyone else at the center, as we often do, because this is the nature of sin, things don't go so well. Adam and Eve discovered this in Genesis 3, as did Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, who was turned into a beast after he swelled with pride looking over his great city that he had built with his own power. And Herod, when he, decla- when he was declared to be a god and not a man by his people, who was struck down, it says in Acts 12, because he did not give God the glory. Put himself at the center. So understanding this, Paul and Barnabas, when they're on their first missionary journey, they vehemently react against the people in Lystra who try to worship them as gods in Acts 14. And then also the angel in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, rebukes, sternly rebukes John, both in Revelation 19 and 22, not to worship him because John falls at his feet to worship him, this angel. And he says, no, 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 don't worship me. Worship God. That's the right order of things. We saw a similar perspective in our psalm, Psalm 115 that we read earlier, which opens, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. So here's the deal. For a God who is eternal, self-existent, perfect, holy, loving, good, and on and on. For the God who really is the center of all things. It is right, proper, and best that he seeks his own glory. For him not to do so is for him to do something less than perfect. And God is perfect. And when God is at the center and he is being worshipped and he's receiving all glory, then all is well and properly ordered in the world. So that's what we should expect at the center of the brave new world that God is making. That at the center of this new world where sin has been dealt with decisively, that God would be seeking his own glory and receiving glory from those who have been brought into that new world. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Ephesians. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that at the heart of God's redemptive new creation action 
in the Messiah is a desire for himself to receive praise and the glory that's due to his name. This new world must have God right at the center and at the heart receiving praise. And I would submit to you that this is why Jesus in John chapter 4, for example, says the Father is seeking worshipers. That's what God wants. That's what he's going through looking for in the world. He's seeking worshipers. And that's what he deserves. And by his grace, that's exactly what he is making in the Messiah through the death and resurrection of his son. So Paul's own worship in Ephesians 1 through 3 is simply a reflection of this deeper reality. And it's an invitation as well to the church that gets this letter. The church is, as well as to our church, all of us. It's an invitation to join in this worship of God. A subtle thing that we can do is we can begin to revel in the benefits that God gives to his children. His his redemptive work. Simply for what they bring to us. There's a delicate line here. But this is really easy for us to do. It's easy for us to curve the world in upon ourselves. We live in a world where everything is tailored to us. Everything. Every message that we read has been kind of crafted and thought through in a deep way. To try to pluck something in our heart. to, to, To hit a desire. To evoke a need. But like the hiker whose map is of little use until it's oriented to true north. The benefits of God are easily bent out of shape and distorted unless they are oriented to the worship, praise, and glory of God himself. This is the folly of the lepers who were healed by Jesus in Luke chapter 17. Ten lepers were healed. And only one turns around, comes back, and gives thanks to Jesus. Yes, the benefits that God gives to us, his children, are great. But these are always to lead us to worship, to giving thanks, to giving God glory. They're signposts to the reality, to the being that stands behind them, that is the author of them, a God who's worthy of my worship, my praise, my exaltation. And that's the, that's the perspective and the invitation of the first three chapters of this letter. It's an invitation essentially to turn away from me. Which is essentially what worship is. It's turning to God. It's lifting my eyes off of myself. Lifting them up. Even if it's through those benefits. It's lifting them up and through those things. To God himself who is worthy of all glory and honor and worship. It's an invitation to actually come alive. And it's at the heart of the Christian life. It's at the heart of the Christian church. It's at the heart of the brave new world. So what is it that Paul says about this God that we are to worship then? This God to whom he ascribes all glory in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now, we could go on and on and on for a year-long series about what is it about God that that evokes in us real worship. But Paul gives us just one thing in verse 20 of Ephesians 3. And I want to focus in on that. He says that this one, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine or think. That's how he identifies, that's how he describes the God to whom all worship and glory is due, who is able to do far abundantly more than all that we ask or think. 
perhaps not a surprise that Paul describes the God that we're called to worship as a God fundamentally of power. The one who is able. The one who is able. Remember that in Paul's prayer in chapter 1, he wanted us to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. This same power, he says, that was at work in raising Jesus from the dead. Again, when he prays, as we looked at last week in chapter 3, he talks again of the need for power, asking that, we might be, that, that he might grant to us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. And then again, that we may have strength, same idea, power, to comprehend the love of Christ that's beyond comprehension. So it's really no wonder that when he erupts into praise at the end of this section of the letter, that he describes the one that we are to praise fundamentally as the one who is able. This word, the one who is able, has the same root as the word for power. We don't get it as much in the English. It's obvious in the Greek. Now in Ephesians, we've seen that the power of God is displayed most of all in the raising of the Messiah from the dead and then seating him at at his right hand, at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. And then in chapter 2, we see that power, that same power that did this to Jesus, is now doing this to us as it raises us from death in trespasses and sins to new life in the Messiah. And in both cases, there's something distinctive about the power of God. It's that this power overcomes the great enemies of human life and flourishing. Those enemies being sin and death. This is resurrection power. This is the power of a God who can overcome what we cannot overcome. I was at a network meeting in Virginia over the last few days. I got back yesterday. And on the drive there, we were having a conversation, a number of us, about the way that we love to control the image that we project to the world as human beings. And our our sense of power in doing so. That we can go out and and project by buying certain clothes or posting certain pictures online or taking up certain habits in our lives. We can project a certain image and we have control over that image. But I was struck, uh, optimist as I always am, in the middle of this conversation, that we actually all die. And I, and I realized that, you know, despite the fact that we have power over so many things and we have the ability to manipulate and control so much in our world. That in the great, in in the face of the great menace of death, all we can do is surrender. All we can do is lay down. Now that alone should be enough to humble the Nebuchadnezzars and the Herods among us. We cannot extend our life. A day is coming when our will to overcome will be overcome. And we'll succumb to the very earth that we now manipulate beautifully. And I would say in the image of God through science and technology for good purposes. But we will in the end succumb to its mastery over us. I'm getting ahead of myself because it's not Ash Wednesday. But from dust you have come and to dust you shall return. This is why the power of God is so spectacular in Ephesians 1 through 3. This is why when we celebrate the power of God as Christians, we are celebrating his resurrection power, which is through and through every syllable, every sentence in the book of Ephesians. It's about resurrection. It's about a God who can overcome what we cannot overcome. 
This is the power of the God that we're called to worship. He can overcome our greatest enemies. And Paul says in this text, he says that he can do far more abundantly. Some people think he made up this word. It's three words combined together. He can do infinitely more than all that we ask or imagine. According, he says, to the power that is at work in us. That power that is at work in us is the same power. The resurrection power that raised Jesus, that raised us. That's how we know that God can do abundantly more than all that we can ask or imagine. Because he's a God of resurrection power. And if God can do that, then God can do anything. We believe this. If we don't believe this, we don't go by the name of Jesus. Our life is built upon this. And this gets affirmed in other places. Jesus in Mark 10. With man it is impossible but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The angel says to Mary in Luke 1.27. For nothing will be impossible with God. The God that we worship is the God for whom all things are possible. And we know that because he has overcome death itself. Now I should be, say, I should be clear and say that this verse uh, doesn't say that God will do everything that we ask or imagine, as it sometimes gets twisted to say in hard moments of our lives or at big and wonderful occasions like weddings and so on. It says that he's able to do more than we ask or imagine. That means that there's no limit. There's, no, there's nothing that restricts what God can do. But it doesn't mean that you'll be healed of a sickness that you're wrestling with. It doesn't mean that you'll pass the exams that you're facing in a few weeks. It doesn't mean that you'll necessarily be reconciled to a friend that's deeply wounded you, with whom you're unreconciled right now. And it doesn't mean that your team's going to win the Super Bowl. (laughs) Maybe. But you do rest in the hands of this God for whom all things are possible. And what he can do outdoes your greatest imagination. He loves you. He's given himself to you. He's put his spirit inside of you. And this is a source of great comfort and encouragement and peace and hope for Christians. No, we we cannot manipulate God to do what we want. But we can be assured that God will accomplish everything Everything that he wants to accomplish in our lives. And we know that he loves us. And we know that he's good. That should deeply impact the way that we live day by day. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Perhaps it should be obvious at this point why he says those things. It's because of what we, <clears throat> of what we already stated that in these two spheres, in the church and in Christ Jesus, the resurrection power of God is most wonderfully displayed. And as we live out this resurrection life under the lordship of Jesus, God's glory is shown into the world through the church where this reconciled, restored, renewed humanity exists. A church whose very life and existence comes in Christ Jesus, in the Messiah. And lastly, Paul goes on to say that this glory will continue throughout all generations 
forever and ever. In Revelation 4 and 5, we get a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. And we see the living creatures and the elders and the angels worshiping God the Father and the Lamb who was slain. And then at the end of chapter 5, we read this. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, that's the Son. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Paul says the glory will be to this God forever and ever. Amen. He shares the conviction that we see in Revelation 4 that this glory goes on forever. Because this is good for the world. This is the way the world was meant to be. This is the world properly ordered. Where all creation bows before this one. And gives him glory. As we join in this worship to which we are invited. As the people of God. We join this heavenly chorus of praise and glory. And we get in line with the brave new world of God's making. Worship God. The angel says to John, to him be the glory, Paul says to the recipients of this letter. And this is how I want to conclude. He concludes with this little word, amen. Let it be. Yes. That's what we say when we say amen. As we in our great Thanksgiving prayer come to the end, the one thing that the people of God had said for the last 2,000 years at the end of that prayer is amen. It's as if you can hear the churches, the little, small Not wealthy, not powerful, not known groups of people in these small towns in Western Asia Minor as this letter is being read out to them. And Paul details all this great work that God is doing in the Messiah. And he gets to the end of this opening section and he says, Now to him who is able to do far more than all that we abundantly ask, all that we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever throughout every generation. They're beset by powers. They're looking at idols all around. They're hearing the words of Caesar as Lord. They are under the thumb of the Greco-Roman world. And they hear this wonderful story of God working his purposes out in the world beautifully and powerfully. Of a God who is strengthening them in power in their inner being. Of a God who can do this and all things. And you can just see them erupting with amen. They probably started a worship service before they got into chapter 4. Amen. It's this collective endorsement of this praise to God for what he has already done in the Messiah and in their lives and for what Paul assures them that he can and will do Because he is able on into the future. The God that we worship in the Christian church, the God of resurrection, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is uniting all things in the Messiah. This God has chosen you, we've learned this fall. He's adopted you, He's redeemed you. 
He's raised you with the Messiah. He's reconciled you to himself and to one another. And he's come to dwell in you. He's given you an inheritance and a future. So we say, Amen. Yes, let it be. To him be the glory forever and ever.